Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on with it. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. My name's Chris Kirkbride. Another busy week this week. Sanctions, money laundering, fraud, corruption, the usual life-affirming stuff. So if you don't mind, I just think I'll crack on with it. The links to the main documents are, of course, available in the podcast description. We'll start this week with sanctions. It's been a bit of a slow week, but a couple of things worth flagging. First, the European Union has this week imposed sanctions on 19 senior officials and members of the armed forces of Myanmar following last year's military takeover, which unsettled the region and which threatens to cause further destabilisation in Southeast Asia. Further, the US has imposed sanctions on an arms dealer, Kiao Min U, and his company Sky Aviator Company Limited, which have been facilitating arms deals and weapons purchases on behalf of the military of Myanmar. Across the globe, the sanctions agencies have been totting up the value of the sanctions imposed on Russia since its invasion of Ukraine. In the US, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, has identified more than $32 billion in funds during the past fiscal year which it has seized. It was described in uncharacteristic understatement for such news as a huge amount by Jim Lee, head of the IRS Criminal Investigation Unit. This figure was followed swiftly by the United Kingdom Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, which published its annual review this week, one of the headline figures of which provided that just over £18 billion worth of Russian assets had been frozen and reported to Offsea following the United Kingdom's imposition of sanctions. The figure relates to the period from the 22nd of November, uh, sorry, 22nd of February 2022 to the 20th of October 2022. The link to the annual review is in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, just a brief update on a story we covered last week. It was reported that a licence had been issued relating to Truphone Limited, which allows it to continue to make and receive payments for the purpose of telephone services provision. The licence was initially due to expire on the 31st of January 2023, but the period has been extended this week to the 28th of April 2023. Other amendments to the licence include the addition of a subsidiary and further information about what is permitted under the terms of the licence. Link to the updated licence is in the podcast description. In addition, the UK list of people, entities and ships designated for sanctions purposes has been updated and the link to the latest list is also included in the podcast description. The list has been amended with the addition of 44 individuals from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Myanmar and Russia under the national designations and also amendments under the global human rights list. That's it for sanctions. I said it wasn't particularly busy. We'll focus attention now on money laundering. A little thin on the ground insofar as money laundering is concerned, but we start this week with the story of a Nigerian social media influencer, whatever that is, uh, Roman or Ramon rather, Abbas, known by the Instagram handle as Hush Puppy with an I at the end. He's been sentenced to just over 12 years for money laundering and internet fraud. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California announced that Abbas had also uh, been ordered to make restitution of 1.7 million U.S. dollars 
to two victims of fraud. The full link to the official announcement is in the podcast description. The UK government via Companies House, which is the register of companies in the United Kingdom, has announced a list of UK regulated agents who can complete verification checks of beneficial owners of an overseas entity. The list of agents is in the link in the podcast description. However, Companies House itself hasn't had the best press this week, where it's been widely reported as dysfunctional, a description used by Nick Van Benshoten, the director of international illicit finance at UK Finance, as well as uh, anti-fraud bosses at UK banks NatWest and HSBC, who also criticised the online register of UK-based companies. The comments were made in an evidence session in the UK Parliament before the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee. The link to the full hearing transcript is in the podcast description. And finally on money laundering this week, the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the JMLSG, has published proposed amendments to Part 2 of its guidance. Link is in the podcast description. Now to fraud, where it's been a biggish week this week. There's quite an important bit of information coming out of the United Kingdom House of Lords Committee. But we'll start this week with our old friend, COVID-19 fraud. The sheer scale of that we've reported on many, many weeks over the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Several countries, as you'll know, created schemes to help business bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic, which it is remembered is not over yet. It rumbles on in the background. Now, those schemes that were implemented across the globe were invariably exploited by the unscrupulous, and this week more reports of action being taken by the US and the UK have been announced. I'll start with the US, where the Department of Justice has announced a guilty plea from an individual in relation to conspiracy to launder fraudulent proceeds from the Paycheck Protection Loan Scheme. This chap is looking at a 20-year stretch. In addition, it has also announced that an Indian national has been charged in connection with an US$8 million COVID-19 relief fraud. Links to both announcements from the US Department of Justice are in the podcast description. In the UK, the Insolvency Service has announced a range of sanctions against a number of individuals in relation to their fraudulent exploitation of the bounce-back loan schemes set up to help businesses bounce back from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The sanctions range from directorship disqualifications to bankruptcy restrictions limiting access to credit and so on. Links to the three stories relating to this from the Insolvency Service in the UK are in the podcast description. A couple of minor stories now before a signposting to a major story, and I suppose the fraud section is really as good a place as any to have the story first. Lisa Asofsky is to leave her position as director of the United Kingdom's Serious Fraud Office next year, in August 2023 to be precise, at the end of her tenure at the helm. The appointment of the replacement will doubtless be subject of significant scrutiny and may to a degree give some indicators of any shifts in policy direction up to 2030. And finally, the UK government has published a fact sheet on the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, and it is available in the podcast description. Now, I said and finally, but it wasn't really meant to be and finally, because just under, just under the wire today, we hear that this week, the House of Lords Fraud Act 2006 
and Digital Fraud Committee. I think they need to work on that title, frankly. It's a committee of the United Kingdom Parliament has claimed that the UK has retreated from the fight against fraud. It has issued a report following its extensive evidence-gathering exercises. Its Fighting Fraud, Breaking the Chain report paints a fairly grim picture. This is the summary of the report's key conclusions and key recommendations, which I've taken uh, verbatim from the publications which have been released this week because I haven't had time to look at the full report yet, though that, of course, will happen. We'll start with the key conclusions. First of all, fraud makes up a shocking, all of these words are their words, fraud makes up a shocking 41% of all crime against individuals in England and Wales. Everyone is vulnerable to fraudsters, regardless of background or age, and an adult over 16 or over is more likely to be a victim of fraud than any other individual crime type. An adult aged over 16 or over, that doesn't make any sense. You can only be an adult at 18. But anyway, their words, not mine. Digital technology has led to new opportunities for frauders. fraudsters, indeed it has, and the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated this trend as people moved more of their lives online. Yet the people in charge of these new technologies are not doing enough to prevent the exploitation of their services. While the Fraud Act 2006 is sound, there are opportunities for improvement. However, Due to the under-resourcing of law enforcement, many victims will never see the criminal's court or face justice in the first place. Now, it makes key recommendations following those conclusions. Again, their words, not mine. Here we go. There are a mind-boggling variety of departments, agencies and ministers with responsibility for tackling fraud. This leads to inefficient policymaking and a lack of accountability in government. We want the government to establish a cabinet subcommittee with a clear mandate to tackle fraud, chaired by and accountable to the security minister. At the moment, just 1% of law enforcement is focused on tackling economic crime. The way that fraud is policed is ineffective and agencies lack the digital skills properly to tackle digital crime. Now, what I would say at this point is there have been various announcements by the government and are not always one furiously to defend the government, but there have been announcements to tackle this. The problem is it is always slow to take on board people with the requisite skills in order to be able to combat what is happening. The report goes on, we want fraud to be written into the strategic policing requirement which sets out the top priorities that the police must focus on. There are several factors involved in the fraud chain, but they do not all face the same incentives to tackle the problem. Until all fraud-enabling industries fear significant financial, legal and reputational risk, they will not act. So we call for the introduction of a new corporate criminal offence of failure to prevent fraud, applicable across all sectors, accompanied by significant financial penalties. Now, I'd imagine that will be a hugely controversial thing, particularly if it goes across all sectors, the compliance costs could be significant and there will be some resistance, certainly. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes. The government has, on trend, moved towards these failure to prevent offences with uh, um, uh, strict liability, that is, no mens rea, as a preferable alternative to having to prove mens rea in some circumstances. So we'll see what happens with that one. 
The report goes on, there is no single national campaign to raise awareness about how to protect yourself against fraud and how it reports how to report it if it happens. The government should introduce a single, centrally funded consumer awareness campaign in partnership with industry to remedy this problem. The online safety bill contains several important measures to prevent fraudulent content and scam advertising from appearing on online platforms and to hold tech companies accountable where, when they fail. It must be brought to Parliament urgently. I think the last I'd heard there was a delay in that following the three successive governments we've had in the United Kingdom. There was Johnson's government, then Truss's government, and now we have Sunak's government. You wait ages for a government and then three come along at once. Finally, the UK has one of the most advanced digital banking systems in the world. While this is great for businesses and consumers, it makes the UK a lucrative market for fraudsters who want to cash quickly out stolen funds. We're calling for the introduction of a delay lasting no more than several hours on certain high-risk payments. This will give banks more time to analyse whether a payment might be fraudulent. I may be wrong, but I think practically banks do something similar anyway as part of their payment systems oversight. But like I said, I could be wrong on that. The link to the report is in the podcast description. As I said, I haven't read the 191 pages of it. I've just read the summaries because that's all I've had time for this week. I suppose at some point I'll sit down with a Negroni in a quiet corner and read it. That's it for that. We'll move on to some confiscation news now. Important news relating to England and Wales, where the Law Commission for England and Wales, which is the law reform proposal body, has published a new set of proposals relating to reform of confiscation. Broadly, the proposals aim to increase the court's powers to enforce confiscation orders and seize offenders' assets. The press release provides as follows. The proposals will, first of all, accelerate confiscation payments by establishing strict timetables for hearings which take effect immediately after the defendant has been sentenced for their crime. Second, they'll give courts the powers to impose contingent enforcement orders at the time that a confiscation order is made, meaning that if a defendant does not pay back the proceeds of a crime within a set time, assets, including property or funds in a bank account, I'm guessing property, by property they mean land, but it's this ambiguous use of the term, but it is the Law Commission, so maybe they do mean general property. Or funds in a bank account, which of course are also property, but they're a different type of property, uh, could instead be taken to recover the proceeds of crime. Thirdly, strengthen restraint orders, which can be imposed by a court to stop a defendant from protecting funds or assets that might later be involved in confiscation proceedings, place the risk of dissipation test test currently used by the courts to judge whether to use this order on a statutory footing and clarify what could trigger the use of these orders. Uh, fourthly, strengthen law enforcement agencies' responses through better police training and national asset management strategy. Five, update the provisions that factor in a defendant's criminal lifestyle when assessing their benefit from crime. Confiscation from defendants deemed to have a criminal lifestyle will also include gains from their wider criminal conduct. We recommend that a, def that a defendant would have to commit fewer offences to be deemed to have a criminal lifestyle. 
Uh, I think it's number seven now. Great. Give greater consideration to the defendant's ability to pay so that enforcement, so that enforcement uh, can be more effective. Defendants will be obligated to provide clearer and more detailed evidence of their financial position if they claim to be unable to pay their order. And the final two, create more flexible tools to ensure better enforcement, give judges the power to adjust the funds that must be paid back by a defendant, depending on their personal circumstances. This would avoid situations where there is no realistic prospect of recovering the full amount of the confiscation order. And finally, set out a clear statutory objective to govern the new confiscation regime, namely to deprive defendants of their benefit from criminal conduct, this would provide clarity on the purpose of the regime and move away from any prior emphasis on punishment. Now, this is a Law Commission report and the recommendations are included in that report. Whether the government responds to the report with concrete commitments regarding implementation remains to be seen, though one suspects, given the position of the last three governments, that there is likely to be some movement, if not along the wholesale lines recommended by the Law Commission, then certainly by looking to implement some of the recommendations by amendments to the current regime. Links to the documents are all to be found in the podcast description. And we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by turning our face to corruption. With a range of bribery and corruption stories, start with a bit of association football. We start with FIFA. The FIFA World Cup kicks off I think it's next Sunday, the 20th of November. I've never been so underwhelmed about the imminent kickoff of a World Cup. But anyway, allegations relating to alleged bribery or allegations relating to bribery and corruption in the awarding of the tournament to Qatar have again emerged in a Netflix documentary which has premiered this week. Allegations have dogged both FIFA and the the uh, tournament host for some considerable time and anyone can see that from a quick web search in fact i did that in preparation for this week's financial crime weekly podcast and the number of stories going back years relating to alleged bribery and corruption in relation to the bid are all over the internet this comes on top of a story this week where sap blatter the former president of fifa who was banned from any FIFA-related activities in 2015 following an investigation, said that the tournament should never have been awarded to Qatar. Well, state the obvious, why don't you? Of course it should never have been awarded to Qatar. I suppose, I mean, that's got my Netflix viewing sorted for the next couple of weeks. I'll have a look at this and see what I think. I don't tend to binge watch, so I probably won't watch it in an afternoon or an evening. But I certainly will watch it because it's an interesting an interesting sideshow to the main event which kicks off next Sunday. Now, to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, which has announced this week that Portugal needs to take action to improve its enforcement of foreign bribery. Despite some reforms, Portugal, quotes, has not addressed long-standing OECD concerns regarding its legal framework and sanctions for foreign bribery against natural and legal persons do not appear to be effective, proportionate or dissuasive. The link to the OECD release is in the podcast description. Now, and this is an odd one, principally because I never thought I'd be using the word lychee in a podcast of this type, but 
Transparency International has seen to that. This week, TI, or Transparency International, has made representation to France's National Financial Prosecutor's Office and Madagascar's Anti-Corruption Court, asking for an investigation into possible corruption by French companies and citizens, as well as Malagasy organisations exporting to the European Union. The allegations relate to foreign bribery, tax fraud, money laundering and related offences. Full press release from Transparency International is in the podcast description. And finally this week, another bit of light reading after the reports and the Law Commission recommendations that I've suggested that you could go and have a look at if you wanted to. This week, the US law firm Miller & Chevalier has published the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act Autumn Review for 2022. The link to this frankly outstanding resource is in the podcast description. That's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual life-affirming roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.